This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 3rd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So tomorrow, July 4th, NPR will be doing the thing it's been doing for uh, three decades, where members of the staff do a dramatic reading of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Other organizations have gotten into this. There is a a tape of actors, Kevin Spacey, Morgan Freeman, so forth, doing a dramatic reading of the Declaration. The NFL issued their own version of a dramatic reading of the Declaration. If you want to hear Don Shula read a clause written by Jefferson. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, they have the advantage of reading the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. But we're going to take this idea. We're going to apply it to July 3rd. All right, they own the 4th. They own the Declaration. That's a famous document crafted on the 4th. We're going to one-up them. We're going to get ahead of the game. But we need a good July 3rd famous text. So I went through the archives, dusted off, the parchment, and here's what I found. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you this dramatic reading of a film that first entered our national consciousness on this date, July 3rd, 2007. Our planet was once a powerful empire, peaceful and just, until we were betrayed by Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. All who defied them were destroyed. Our war finally consumed the planet, and the Allspark was lost to the stars. Megatron followed it to Earth, where Captain Witwicky found him. I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message to any surviving Autobots taking refuge among the stars. We are here. We are waiting. You know, maybe maybe the Transformers isn't where I was riveted, but maybe we need to go with the historic Americana. Let's go back in the past and give you this dramatic reading of an event that occurred July 3rd, 2009, the resignation speech of Sarah Palin. Well, people who know me know that besides faith and family, nothing is more important to me than our beloved Alaska. Serving her people is the greatest honor that I could imagine. This land is blessed with clean air and water and wildlife and minerals and oil and gas. It's energy. God gave us energy. So to serve the state, it is such a humbling responsibility because I know in my soul that Alaska is of such importance for America's security in such a volatile world today. We are doing so well, my administration. My administration's accomplishments, they speak for themselves. We broke new ground on the new prison. I really wish you would hear more from the media. 
More from the media of your state's good progress and how we tackle our outside interests, special interests daily we're tackling. Those interests that would stymie our state, even those debt-ridden stimulus dollars. I've been accused of all sorts of frivolous ethics violations, such as holding a fish in a photograph. That's a quitter's way out, to just kind of hunker down and go with the flow. We're fishermen. We know that only dead fish go with the flow. Or perhaps even more transcendent than that, I was looking to music. Three horrible tragedies actually happened on July 3rd, years apart. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones died. Jim Morrison died. And perhaps saddest of all, July 3rd, 1989, the new kids on the block released their single, Hangin' Tough. Here now, a dramatic reading of that. Listen up, everybody, if you want to take a chance. Just get on the floor and do the new kids dance. Don't worry about nothing, because it won't take long. We're going to put you in a trance with a funky song. Because you got to be hanging tough, hanging tough, hanging tough. We're rough. Oh, 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 oh. On the show today, what better way to celebrate America than with a cross-dressing Englishman, Eddie Izzard. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Eddie Izzard is a stand-up comedian, a writer, a runner. Did you know he ran 27 marathons in 27 days to honor Nelson Mandela's 27 years in prison? You would say, wow. If that was the only thing he did, but if you've ever seen his stand-up comedy, you would maybe say, wow, that guy in the dress ran 27 marathons. He is now the author of a new memoir, Believe Me, a memoir of love, death, and jazz chickens. Hello, Eddie. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Uh, yes. And it's also in Germany. I'm just going to say this. And you say, well, we're not going to buy it. But it, I think that's very cool at a time when certain countries, your country, my country, are pulling backwards, building walls, saying run and hide. Some of us are still heading out. And it's coming out in Germany. Uh, mein Leben, ein Leben zwischen uh, Liebe, Tod und Jazzhühnen. And I just love that because they had to say, we can't really translate this literally. Can we change this a little bit? My a life between love, death, and jazz chickens. So that's well, what it is. I... I'm a little ashamed of America for the politics you just cited, but a little proud that jazz becomes jazz. We invented it. Even the Germans yes, don't think to translate it. I was going to say, it's a beautiful thing because you invented it, but it's not mm, anyone can be one. There could be a, a kid in China growing up right now, even North Korea, if they ever get groovy, which, but anyway, they, they, they could le- learn to play jazz and it, you, it, it was a gift to the world. You made it and it was yours and you did build it. Uh, I think we were supposed to come up with football, soccer, but then it was a gift to the world. Everyone does it now. So anyone could be a great jazz uh, player and that is a wonderful thing. You are a piano player. Do you play much jazz? Uh, no, I'm not that good. I, I was very influenced by Elton John's style. I do octaves with my left hand, so I just 
thunder around with octaves, so just um, an octave progression. And and then I just, I, my right hand's quite interesting, and I just do chord progressions, uh, somewhat melod- melodic. I've, I've got stuck, as, I'm sort of an 18, 19-year-old who never became a professional pianist. I've done one gig in my life, which was in front of 60,000 with Midjour <laughs> at, at Murrayfield. That is bizarre. That's the only prof- only gig I've ever done in music was in front of 60,000 people. Well, if you charge um, $2,000 a ticket, that's you. it, you're out. Yeah, one game. Why out. need to that do was, more? Yeah. That was Steve Martin's yeah. uh, ultimate dream. Um, you, you know, in the book, um, starting in the middle, but since we're talking about piano, you do make this observation that when you weren't getting parts, you played a lot of piano. And then when you, uh, it seems like when you started with the comedy and getting parts, the piano went by the wayside. But it's interesting that you were able to assess what was working for you and emphasize that. Well, it, I, I would have said I was trying both. I was trying anything at that point. And, and, but I was definitely, I was going to act from the age of seven. So, so piano was there. My mum played the organ slash piano and she was in sort of musical comedy, um, and amateur dramatics. Um, so I had that within me. And once I got on the piano, because I was sort of encouraged slash forced to play the clarinet, which I didn't want to play. Um, and, uh, once I got onto the piano and let, set myself free and play and found the, the chords myself and started listening to tracks from bands and learning to, to pick out the chords from the piano that I really loved it was a really do-it-yourself thing it was what bands get into music for find your own music find the music you like and then improve by training yourself that way but I was never that was never the thing I was going to do because I didn't feel sexy enough to do rock and roll seemed very sexy mm. and I didn't I felt kind of cruddy uh, a bit nerdy um, uh, and I had you know I was transgender as well but that was under the surface that didn't really affect it but I still just didn't feel hey I am God's gift to sex I'm going to jump you don't have to feel that but if you do music it's just something that wasn't tracking in my brain so it was it was drama and above all comedy comedy and and I loved films but I I, I had dumped the idea of doing film and film drama. Uh, by about seventeen, eighteen, I got it back at thirty. In America, we talk about the grit. We this there, there are books sold about how to raise your kids with grit. So I was reading your life story. Your mom dies at six. Your dad is uh, you're you're fairly you're well off enough to go to boarding school, and he works for British Petroleum. But you also write how the institutions seem to be saying no, no, no. There was a wall of no's. You write in your life, and yet your dad was there, being at least tacitly supportive. Is there some magical combination there? Is it? It's great to have the support at home, but the institutions as a as a as a as a force to have to overcome, or is it to have a little bit of both in some combination in your life? What do you? Th- how do you think it worked out for you? It's definitely good to have love coming from somewhere, and and dad was a loving dad. He wasn't necessarily as overt as mum at showing it, but um, I think dad was. I was doing this slightly com- is it complicit the right word I was I was basically saying yes I will go to university there was a big thing you've got to go to university because although dad could pay for us to go to boarding school he wasn't paying any money mum had died and so there was only a three person family and also his dad was a bus driver and his my mum's dad was a was a cow herder who claimed he was a shepherd which I think is a brilliant thing and um <laughs> But why is it more? Uh, so we, is, it, so, is it is it sexier to be a shepherd? Why would one? Don't you think? Don't I, you I think? Suppose, yes, there has been better think, religious connotations. Je- exactly. So you were <laughs> Jesus was a shepherd, except yeah. she were people of the. You know, it, I think I think it came. It's on my mum's birth certificate, and my aunt said, "No, he wasn't a shepherd. He was never a shepherd." So I think they came and said, "And so, um, and what do you do? Uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm a shepherd." <laughs> 
Yeah, I think he just said that. I like the idea that he just made it up and his wife would be looking at him saying, you're not a shepherd. Well, shepherd shepherds, have, the... shepherds have a crook and, and ranchers yep. have a prod, a cattle prod. I think the crook is the coolest. Yeah, that's ranchers. You're talking about ranchers. Cowboy. Cowboy's okay. That's a good, but this is, this is in the, we're much smaller in the UK. And so he was a cow herder pushing cow herder, them into the yeah. barn, pushing them into the field. Oh, gosh. A cow man, you know, not <laughs> yeah. a great thing. And then he retired and he loved Dickens. He read and reworked the, all the works of Dickens and he was the local lithographer once his wife died, my my grandmother, um, really? he just went around all the divorcees, apparently in Appledore in Kent, just saying, so hello, how are you, Mrs. Stevens? Your husband <laughs> is long gone, shall we? I don't, I, so I, he no, really I was a cowpoke, you're saying? Well, you're saying that. I'm <laughs> saying, that was oh God, that's a terrible, terrible joke. No, I just, I just like them being a Lothario. Um, he also sold his house, got a bit of money, and then went and lived with all his children when they didn't want him to live. You know, he just kept turning up. I'm living with you now for four months. <laughs> what? Yes. Oh God. Okay. Um, I, I just like his style. I've put, I've put, I've written him into a film. I've combined my two granddads and written them into the the film that I've written, which is um, hopefully shooting this year. But um, yeah, so dad only just had enough money. He had no money for anything else. He got us into school and that was it. All his money was gone. So it was kind of an extremist situation. It wasn't the kind of, oh, we were loaded. We were first uh, generation middle class, I suppose. Now, on the cover of your book, uh, since this is a radio interview, uh, I will describe it. And you're wearing a tuxedo and you're wearing something pretty shocking, a wristwatch. Yeah. Cool. Yes. You also you also have uh, very nicely manicured fingernails with uh, red acrylic, I think, paint. But uh, who wears a wristwatch these days, Eddie? It's not acrylic paint. Acrylic is the stuff that makes the nails. In, and then what do I put, know? Uh, it's it's jealous. I know. Yeah. You just said that very Bad. confidently, and that didn't mean yeah. anything. Yeah. Um, but I like the way you're saying wristwatch, and everyone's at home going, yeah, what's wrong with a wristwatch? I mean, it's not. It's actually, it's, and I think it's kind of between a boy and a girl wristwatch, as I have oh. boy genetics and girl genetics, and it's kind of superhero thing. But it's actually the one that my mum bought me um, uh, in Christmas of 67, she bought one for my brother, one for me. It's, it's an Amiga constellation. And, um, uh, and she knew she was dying of cancer and it was going to be given to us on our 18th birthdays, which we got. So that's a beautiful thing. It's the last thing I have of hers, which I think she touched. So it's, and it's a beautiful watch as well. You write so much about so many of the memories that you have before she died, before you were yeah. six years old. Can you trust those memories? Do you think yes, I locked them in. I, I, I think it's a bit bizarre because most people think, well, I had hazy memories. I found that because I, I would just run my mind back through the times that we had after she died and and sort of I was very feeling very sorry for myself and and you know I, and I just think I locked them in by just revisiting and revisiting and revisiting and revisiting I, I've just I know how the entire holiday I had when I was three in, in Gothenburg in Sweden and I, I've got lots of that locked in got lots of early memories learning to ride the bicycle and we the book shows and if you there's a believe documentary as well so this is believe me the me version of believe mm. and then there's the sarah townsend version of believe that was an emmy nominated documentary and that in if you download that you can see um all this footage of my family which was which came from this swedish family the ridson family who uh tori ridson he filmed all of us when he came and visited and so we've got all this footage which we hadn't seen for years and we got it in uh you know about 10 years ago we first saw it so that's a wonderful thing now, a couple times in this interview and in the book, you talk about the different labels one would uh, use to describe yourself. And you say, back then I was a transvestite. Now it is called transgendered. Do you have a preference? If you had to choose, what would 
What would you no, like the word? No, it really to be? doesn't matter. It's you know, as I said, um, I'm saying in the book tour that I've been doing uh, for African American people, the word I think was uh, Negro before. Then it became colored person, and then it uh, moved into African American. Language does change; it moves forward. And um, so, if we have together chosen that trans is the word transgender, I always knew that transgender was the grouping um, yes. because when I came out, it wasn't even transvestite; it was TV. I was going around saying, "I am a TV, I am a TV," and people saying, "Well, how many channels?" <laughs> <laughs> and I say, well, I've got one, and then I've got the alternative channel. No, but it was uh, it was TV and transvestite and transsexual, TVTS, to try and get away from the stigma of this negative word, transvestite or transsexual. And then I thought, no, I'm going to reclaim transvestite. And then I said, action transvestite and uh, um, executive transvestite. I came yeah. up with those because <laughs> they found a guy in New York living in a cave. He had a lot of women's clothes that he'd found. And they said, he's obviously a transvestite. And I said, well, that's weirdo transvestite living in a cave. <laughs> I don't. I travel business class. I'm an executive transvestite. So I kept trying to create this whole taxonomy. It was hard. It was hard to keep it organized with the spreadsheets and all. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And then I came up with boy mode and girl mode to explain how my, I think it, I'm I'm so 99% sure that it's genetics and they'll find the genetic strain that if you, the feeling that you want to express yourself in a certain way, you want to wear heels or, or makeup or a skirt, that I, some women have it, some women don't have it. And I have it. And it's, I think it's exactly the same genetic coding when they track it down. They go, there it is. There it is. It's this bit. Now, now, I have noticed sometimes when you explain this, you talk about it in shows, but just last week you're on Bill Maher and you explained to him, no, I like to wear women's clothing. And then I also like to fuck women when I'm wearing women's clothing sometimes. Uh, so there is this explanation. I don't think I put it, I didn't put it quite like that, did I? I think maybe he did. <laughs> yes, he might. Yeah. But in fact, I don't call it women's clothing. I've got to say, it's my clothes. I bought them. Oh, that's right. I just wear wear dresses. I wear makeup. You know, they don't wear men's clothes when they wear pants. So we've got to get our language up to speed. So I will will correct that. But my my point is sometimes, depending on the audience, uh, your explanation will be, this is uh, a clothing choice I like. But in the book, it seemed more of, this is an identity I have. So is that the better way, the more accurate way that you feel about it? Yeah, it's expressing identity and uh, girl mode, boy mode. I, you know, I, I act in a lot of dramas and I'm in boy mode. I've just up against, uh, acting against Judy Dench in a Stephen Frears film playing Edward VII that she was playing Queen Victoria. And that's obviously in boy mode. And then I can go on a tour and it doesn't really matter. So I can do boy mode or girl mode. Politics, I tend to do girl mode more because um, uh, it's a nice message. Uh, mm. Yeah, so I just choose. And I've, I've sort of made this up. I don't feel that psychiatrists who were working on people who were um, alternative sexuality would necessarily have the best information. I was using myself as my own uh, testing ground, so I would test out how I felt about things, how I wanted to express myself in a way that didn't hurt anyone, and it's my life, and it's better than what's gone for the last... 10 millennia before here, if we go back 10,000 years to the beginning of a, some kind of beginning of civilization, um, you know, this is way better now than it was back then. Now, I think the cutting edge, and I'm sure this will change in 10 years, is to talk about beyond male and female, there are seven genders from agender to cisgender to gender queer and gender fluid. Does this, does this help you? I'm sure it will change just as I, Negro changed to African-American and so forth. But does Yeah, does, I think getting... I think if we get very, it doesn't have, we just, I, yeah, too many labels. I just want, you know, I was TV and now I'm trans or transgender or whatever. That's fine. But it, uh, but I, if you, if anyone 
down, goes online and looks up Eddie Izzard, uh, marathon man nails this nails video I did. I was running my, I was running about twenty seven marathons in, in South Africa, and I went yeah. to get my nails fixed in in Cape Town. And then I, it was filmed by Steve the cameraman just on an iPhone, and I just ad libbed a statement about where I was, and I said it really, it, of course it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're straight, if you're gay, LGBT plus, whatever you are. What do you do in life? What do you add to the human existence? That is what is important. Uh, you know, and when LGBT hits boring, that's when we've made it. So we, if we're getting into <laughs> lots of subclasses and Venn diagrams, I mean, Mr. Venn is, is happy as Larry, isn't he? Saying, My Venn diagrams are working so, so fantastically here. There's so many subgroups. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm less interested in that. I'm interested in saying, okay, so you're, you're transgender, you're gay, you're what, fine. What do you do? Oh, you play the banjo. Do you play it any good? Because I'd like to listen to it. If not, then I won't listen to it. You know, that's what we want. We want the banjo players and the librarians and the helicopter pilots. Who gives a monkeys? No one says, I'm straight. You go, you're straight. That's amazing. You're, you're, you're a helicopter and you're straight. That's crazy. That's off, out of the world. You know, just, okay, fly the helicopter then. Just don't hit anything. That's what we say. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is your comedy. I, I've always felt that there was a structure to your jokes where you it's so much of the humor almost comes from a footnoting and commenting upon the situation that you've laid out. These, they could be called asides, but sometimes you build to them. But it's not really punchline driven. Uh, I bet you've thought about it more than I have and in a more detailed way. No, I think you have because uh, if you're creating comedy, you want we want to work out techniques to get it there, and then it is up for more a journalistic approach to come and say, now what is actually happening here? Okay. And we don't go into that too much because we think we might lose the ability to make it. So I w- that is interesting. Like in the book, there are footnotes. In the audio book, there are footnotes on the footnotes um, because I keep going off on tangents. And also, I'm dyslexic, and I think dyslexic people think sideways rather than necessarily straight forwards in a straightforward way. But I think dyslexic people are very creative um, or more likely to be creative because we do think sideways. Um, so I I would say that some of my stuff is found from discursive nature. nature. I come up with an idea and then I keep going sideways and I find a much more interesting idea. Yes. But some of it, and, and there's very few punchlines. I would agree with that. But there are funny bits, but it's not like, uh, and he was wearing a hat, so I hit him with a kipper. You know, it's not that kind of stuff. But but I do like the thing, you know, I came up with this thing, and it's so obvious when you think about it. It's about Julius Caesar saying, Caesar, did he ever think he would end up as a salad? And and people seem to laugh at that in English. And then I, when in French, it's exactly the same. That's a beautiful thing, which I, I said this on Bill Barr, but it says, est-ce qu'il a jamais imaginé qu'un jour il finirait en salade? And that's exactly the same laugh line. And people said, oh, the French, they only have a visual sense of humor because all they've seen is Jacques Tati. And they said, no, no, it isn't. It's actually, there's multiple senses of humor in every country. You just have to link up with all the kids who like Python, and then you can play around the world, as I've played 45 countries now. And all those kids dig it. Not everyone digs it, but uh, the groovy people do. What about German? How does that change yeah. the comedy? So this is, and this is how it goes in German. So, that, so it's a past tense about Caesar ending up as a salad. So you've got a verb after the noun at the end. Normally a noun releases the laugh. Here we get technical. But it's uh, Caesar hat er je gedacht, did he ever think, dass er einmal, that he one time als salad enden würde, as salad end up would have. And they still, even though the w- end up would have comes just after it, they still get it. And uh, they laugh at exactly the same point. Is there something about the harshness of German consonants that's good for comedy? 
No, you see, there is no harshness in German. If you go to, ah. have you been to Berlin ever or been to Germany? Because if you do and switch on a daytime program, they're saying visit here with uh, with Hans. Hans, was was is los? Was is los? And they just chat away right. about things. Oh, I've got a problem. My knee doesn't work. Was is wrong with the knee? The knee. And it's like now, if you're Hitler, you're going. We will kill. We will murder. We will annihilate. Then that sounds kind of harsh because you're screaming hatred out. English with screaming hatred also sounds harsh. Uh, Arabic, uh, Chinese. Venezuelan, whatever it is, Venezuelan is actually Spanish. Um, you know, <laughs> any language, scream hatred and and bile out of your mouth, and that will sound pretty harsh. There's, there's, you know, you're not still in love with Italian when when Benino, uh, Benito Mussolini is screaming this stuff. Maybe it did sound wonderful. I don't know. I, I don't speak Italian, but I don't think so because he was a fascist. He wasn't actually as fascist as the next fascist, though, because he wasn't as bad as Hitler, which is a kind of bizarre thing. To say. Right, right. If you have Hitler as your buddy in the Axis, you wind up looking good. Also, many yeah, I know. more, he, he many wasn't more mistresses. Many, many more. Uh, yes, and then he ended up upside down on a meat hook. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. pros and cons, pros and cons. That's right. <laughs> you give, you get. Um, so, but in English, I'm sure, I know that you are very precise about the language. It's not just, uh, maybe not as precise as the most craftsmen of comedians where, you know, if one pause is off, you think you've done the joke wrong. But since there is oh. a precise... Since there is a precision to the language, when you translate it to other language and it works, does that make you, I mean, I I guess the question is, huh, maybe it wasn't quite so, maybe it wasn't quite so dependent on the words as much as it was the thrust of the ideas. No, I think it's more the ideas than necessarily the words. There's also the tone, the way that you deliver it. But is that particular for your comedy, do you think, more than others? Uh, it could be, it could be, but I, I don't think I am precise with the language. In fact, I developed what I call conversational stand-up. I found that when you come up with a new idea, a new piece of comedy, you it, it's alive, and the audience springs up because they feel your energy in it. You're going, "What about this? What is going on with it? This is yes. crazy!" Yes. And you're all, and then as it gets settled into a form of lines and the form of definite banking comedy lines, it, it starts to settle down, becomes more set, then it becomes more and more like concrete, and then it becomes like a prayer where people read out prayers and they don't. I don't think they listen to the words anymore. And so I try to constantly keep it conversational. So when I started translating, and my brother Mark is the expert in languages, so he translates them. And we found that we didn't have a a pure version. So it actually has made, the the translating has made my English more precise because I started saying, all right, these are the best lines for this bit. And then these are the best lines for this section. And then let's translate those ones into Spanish uh, or or German or French. And my brother keeps getting annoyed with me because I said, Mark, this this has changed now. Can I change this bit? He said, look, we've spent hours learning this bit. Yeah, well, it's now changed. It's three months later, and I'm doing a different bit now. So um, he has to put up with that hellish thing. But he is he is the great translator, and he loves grammar. I love com- I love communication first, grammar second. He's grammar first, communication second. Are there there must be bits though that don't work, don't translate, and is that mostly because of the content? No. No, everything. No, it's well. Yes, it's references. It's references yeah. that trip you up. You see, if you're if you're an uh, alternative comedian, uh, then you've just got to go perform to the audiences that have already seen a lot of comedy, so they're ready for you to take the left turn at the traffic lights, Python influence, you know, surreal, whatever that kind of audience. Now, all you've got to do is then not say things which are brand names from Britain, uh, politicians from Britain, uh, sports stars from Britain, all these people that people wouldn't know out of the country. If you say Kit Kat or Mars Bar, then they're they're more known generically. Mm-hmm. If you say just say chocolate bar, you 
you could say I was on. If you say I'm on the one, I was on the one five nine to Streatham. People go, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> if I was on a bus, it was number one five nine. I was going to South London, a place called Streatham. Okay, South London. Yeah, we get that. So you've just got to give them the terms that they understand. You can even introduce weird ideas, and once you've introduced them, you can use them in your story because they have had them explained. So it's it's story rules. Um, you know, like a film like Whale Rider. I don't know if you ever saw that set sure. in New Zealand, and that was a wonderful film. But you had to know there's a Maori uh, tribe. The elder, the grandfather, had to pass on his his seniority of the tribe. It had to be to a male. It's in modern day New Zealand, so they were driving around in cars and eating bacon and eggs. And once you put all that together, you can understand what's going on. But otherwise, people would say, "Well, who are the Maoris? Who? What's this? Why are they doing that? Why, what's the tribal system going? You know, you once you've explained your, your your references, then you can go into it. It's the references that trip us up when we travel the world. So I write stuff that is universal, and I start each show by going, human sacrifice, how crazy was that? And everyone gets it because they say, yes, it was. My distillation of human sacrifice is that somebody back in the day all around the world said, the weather is bad, the crops have failed, the gods obviously hate us, so we're going to kill Steve. And that is insane. Why the hell killing Steve would make the crops better? And we all did it around the world. All humans chose to do human sacrifice, obviously as a power political play, and not because it had any logic but making the crops better. Steve, who does what name does Steve become in German, French, and Spanish? Uh, Steve Jürgen in in French. Um, <laughs> um, in, in that's in German. Steve yeah. Jürgen in French. It's uh, Steve uh, Steve Claude, uh, like Jean Claude, Steve <laughs> yeah. Claude. Because I found them on the yeah, there Steve is a Claude. Steve Claude name. No, I know there aren't any, but you see, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't move the Steve over, and then if I said Claude, it didn't really work. But so, because so, they have Jean Claude, I yes. said Steve Claude, and they yes. have Kurt Jürgen or something Jürgen, and they said so. I said Steve Jürgen, and in and in Spanish, uh, I can't remember what I'm saying in Spanish, but yeah, I just I I combine it with another name, you know, double barrel name that's Catholic faith driven. Yeah. Thing, so with this thing that you've done, this amazing, I mean, 27 marathons is physically amazing, but that this thing that you've done with uh, four languages. Is it to make some point of connection or more to prove yes. yourself that you could do it? Tell me, tell me. No, it's connection. It's, you know, um, this century, I think, is a key century for us. We either make it work so everyone in the world, all 7 billion people have a fair chance, or I think we're going to wipe ourselves off the planet. I think it's that bad. We invented dynamite in 1860 and the hydrogen bomb in 1950, 90 years later. It's 70 years on from the hydrogen bomb. What is out there? You get someone, you know, despair is the fuel of terrorism. Hope is the fuel of civilization. We've got to be putting more hope into the world. So unlike uh, Donald Trump, I am saying I am proud of my country, but I'm reaching out to other countries. Can we learn from you? Can you learn from us? Like a President Macron is reach out across from country to country and then we can all rise together. We need to get all 7 billion people having a fair chance this century. We won't have any longer after that. We're just going to, we're going to have such hellish weapons out there that I, I, I predict it's going to get very bad and we need to be making, building bridges and mending fences, not, not hiding behind fences. Eddie Izzard, his new memoir is, believe me, a memoir of love, death, and jazz chickens, or jazz, what is it, Hooner? Hooner? Jazz jazz Hoonen. 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 Liebe tot und jazz Hoonen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eddie. Cheers. Thanks very much.
And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Chris Berube and Mary Wilson, who will now honor the founding of the frozen food industry. July 3rd, 1929, the General Seafood Corporation was founded by Clarence Birdseye. Here now, they perform this dramatic reading of all of the offerings of Birdseye Food. Birdseye Steam Fresh Family Size Cut Green Beans. Birdseye Steam Fresh Family Size Sweet Peas. Birdseye Voila Fajita Chicken. Birdseye Mackenzie's White Creamed Corn. Birdseye Balsamic Glazed Family Sized Chicken. Our dramatic readings were performed by Catherine Weinkoop, Daniel Schrader, Gabriel Roth, and Birdseye Steam Fresh Chef's favorite lightly sauced pasta and broccoli with onions and bacon and cheese sauce. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Birdseye Steam Fresh Chef's favorite lightly sauced red roasted potatoes and green beans in a Parmesan olive oil sauce. The gist, we've been called the Birdseye Steam Fresh Marvel Avengers whole grain pasta and peas in a butter sauce of podcasts. Oomperoo, depperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.